You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast. Uh, Alex Lewin, he's the head of uh, Real Food Fermentation. Uh, Alex, thank you for coming. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks, Rich. How are you? Good, good. Yeah, I see that you authored a book, Real Food Fermentation, and then another one, Kombucha, Kefir, and Beyond, you know, with a co-author, and uh, it's great. So what's, um, how did you get into fermented foods and the whole, this whole area of uh, culture, essentially? Um, it started, you know, and I'm telling this story with perfect hindsight because I didn't know that this was why it happened the way it did. And it's still just sort of putting the pieces together. So many times we get somewhere in our life and, and we're not sure exactly how we got there. But uh, my dad had heart disease and he wasn't healthy for a lot of his life. And I, um, I hit a certain age and I got interested in health. And I can say now, I think that's because I was terrified of not being healthy. Um, mm. It's obvious now, but I don't think I quite understood it then. So I started reading books about health and nutrition. And um, it was confusing to me because I had a math and science and physics background, I guess. And I was used to having clear explanations for things. And I started reading about health and nutrition. And one book would say, you know, you have to eat carbohydrates and fats and proteins in a certain ratio. I said, oh, that makes sense. And then another book said, you mustn't ever eat, you know, proteins and carbohydrates together because it's the worst thing you can do because you can't digest them together. I'm like, hmm. And I'm trying to fit all these pieces together. There are all these books that make very convincing arguments for certain things that are partially contradicted by the other books that make very good arguments. So I, I started turning the puzzle pieces over in my head and to make a Long story a little shorter, I um, yeah. I stumbled upon fermentation and it occupied this perfect intersection of uh, health, sustainability, uh, sort of food and culinary world, um, sort of world of anthropology and, and um, human history and prehistory. And it just struck a chord for me. And it also... Uh, was a way to empower people to do something, even when the world felt like everything was out of their control. They could take a cabbage and they could make sauerkraut and they could eat it. And that would be reclaiming part of the world and uh, breaking free of the you know industrial food machine and all that. So that's the short version. And I obviously will talk at great length about whichever part of it seems interesting to you or whatever else you want to ask me. Yeah, as a quick list, <clears throat> what are some fermented foods that people may just maybe even be marginally aware of fermented or not aware at all? I mean, most of the good things that people eat are fermented. Uh, you know, pickles are maybe one of the first things people think of on one side and then beer on the other side. Anything with yeast in it is fermented. Fer we'll take a step back and say, what is fermented? Fermented means in a food context, it's food that's been acted on by microbes microbes are bacteria yeast and mold and so anything that's been acted on by yeast is fermented so like not only beer but wine bread 
Um, that covers a lot. And then um, anything acted on by bacteria, so anything sour, pretty much. So, you know, many kinds of pickles, uh, yogurt, any kind of sour dairy product, most cheeses. And then there are things like olives and chocolate and coffee and um, a lot of things that people don't think of as being fermented, but that rely on microbes for some part of the, the process of their creation. And then there are the, the mold ferments like, you know, dried sausage that has this sort of white stuff on the outside. It's mold. And then some cheese is moldy. And a lot of the Asian ferments like soy sauce and uh, miso and tempeh are all um, driven by mold ferments or at least started by them. You know, it's weird if you think about it is everything we eat, our gut bacteria help digest. So literally everything we eat, even if it's not fermented, it goes through at least a partial fermentation phase to be consumable. And then, you know, when, when you think about fermented food, it's like an extension of your natural body anyway. <clears throat> it's just yeah. a partial digestion or alteration before it even gets to your mouth. But it, literally everything we eat has to be fermented somewhat. I mean, that, that's totally it. And, and um, one of the things that, one of the advantages of, of eating food that's started its fermentation outside of your body is you get sort of a head start on digesting it, which means you can digest it maybe more completely. Maybe there are some toxic compounds in it that get um, neutralized somewhat by the pre-digestion. Maybe the nutrients in it become more bioavailable within your body. So that's one part of it is increasing the digestibility and bioavailability of nutrients. Another part is supplementing the microbes that live in your body, mostly bacteria that live in your gut that help you um, digest foods once they're in your gut. And, you know, there are numbers that appear now and then about like what percentage of the cells within the confines of your body are actually human cells. And I've heard different numbers, but it, it seems pretty certain that most of the cells inside of the confines of your body are not human cells, like most of them are bacteria. And so um, we are not really, you know, I, I've thought about using the first person plural and just referring to myself with a royal we, and I can justify that by, you know, doing just a count of, of the, the cells in my body. Um, the other interesting factoid is, uh, you know, 90 something percent of the unique genetic material within your body is not human genetic material. It's microbes of some sort. So, you know, it's yeah. interesting. Without the microbes, we'd be lost. No, it's true. I mean, it's true. So um, I know my reaction historically and a lot of people's reaction is, oh, you know, that's dirty or that's quote unquote clean or that's sanitary or, you know, there's bacteria on this. Get rid of them. And what I found really interesting when I started learning a little bit about ferments is that, you know, you're deliberately introducing bacteria and the bacteria that get introduced, they set up the environment to be hospitable to them, which crowds out what we call bad bacteria, you know, like in a kombucha or sauerkraut or whatever it is. And it's funny, we do the same thing in our stomach. You know, the <clears throat> bacteria that live there, our stomach produces a lot of acid and that keeps a lot of the bad guys out. So we're, we're like a kombucha living kombucha ourselves in a way you know yeah totally and i i look at it in um military terms although i'm i'm a pretty serious pacifist and i i am very sad about um, a lot of human history but we form alliances with certain groups of microbes that can help defend us against certain other ones because there are certain microbes um like the ones that make sauerkraut for instance that are very helpful to us and there are other ones like the ones that create um, toxic compounds like botulism um, that are very dangerous to us. And so we create an environment where the quote-unquote friendly microbes can multiply so that they'll just crowd out the, the scary ones. Um, so, yeah, fermentation is, is strategic alliance with, with certain microbes. And uh, another popular uh, means of preserving is canning. And canning is, is very different because when you're canning, you create a sealed environment and then you try to kill all of the microbes in there and you hope that it's sealed well and that you killed all the microbes. And, you know, if you follow the guidelines for canning, um, there's some pretty 
well accepted and very conservative safe guidelines for canning. So if you you know cook something at, at boiling at sea level for some number of minutes, then you will have killed everything. Um, so canning can be can be safe too, but the the canning canning is more of a massacre, and fermenting is more of diplomacy. I, I mm. like to say. You know, one of the main factors that will allow a ferment to be successful or not, it seems like air or no air, you know, aerobic or anaerobic, uh, pH, maybe temperature. Um, I mean, what, what are the main factors that you see that allow ferments to either work or not? A lot of it, you know, the ones you mentioned are, are, are definitely key. The, um, the factors in, in any kind of um, microbial food safety are the same. And when you take a uh, food safety class that you have to take if you're managing a restaurant or something like that. Um, there's an acronym and it's uh, FAT TOM. So food, acidity, temperature, time, uh, oxygen, and moisture. So uh, e- each of those things is, is one of the factors. With fermenting, a lot of times you're... you're um, with bacterial ferments like sauerkraut and pickles and the sour things, you're really playing with the acidity most of all. If you can get something below a pH of 4.6, so more more sour than, you know, 4.6 or more sour or more acidic, um, the pathogenic microbes that, that can survive are, are basically none or they'll be crowded out by the, the, the happy microbes. So with, with bacterial ferments, um, that's acidity is the main one. Um, w- with the others, it can be a little, it can be a little more complicated. Um, certainly other means of preserving, like when, when you're canning, you're just killing everything. If you're drying, you know, you rely on, on, um, just creating an environment where there's no moisture. And if there's no moisture, then pretty much, um, nothing very few dangerous things will 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 thrive there so if you think of like beef jerky or dry sausage or even bread like you know Mm -hmm. bread will go a few days and if it's sourdough bread it'll go longer because it's more sour and more acidic so um that's sort of it's not the the parameters aren't any different than any other kind of food safety it's just the way you create the 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 way you get out of the the food uh danger zone is is using the microbes to, to help you. I wonder why, um, you know, an acidic environment, it, it makes me think that it tends to mimic our stomach environment so that, you know, things that would survive an acidic environment in a ferment would also probably survive our stomach and our stomach, you know, selects for that using its acid. And maybe that's why acidic things are things that we can, you know, we're able to eat more often than not. And they favor the bacteria that we're able to work with. And just There's a thought question. Definitely- yeah, no, there's definitely a lot of that. And, um, you know, we evolved alongside these bacteria and they evolved often inside of us. And so it's definitely a, um, a case of, of symbiosis. And so it's, it's, not a, it's not a coincidence, I don't think. I mean, it's hard to say what, what really happened and when because it's just a long time ago. But, um, the, yeah, we are... We are creatures that rely on acidity for, for the safety of our digestive tract, for sure. Um, and hmm. yeah, yeah. I don't know if you know this, but the uh, bacteria that are predominant in ferments, are they also predominant in our bodies or not necessarily? There's a lot of overlap. Um, it's a little hard because uh, there, there are some ferments, some of the, hmm, there are categories of ferments where, like most of the commercial yogurt, you add a specific few bacteria to it and they create the acidity in the yogurt. Um, or if you take a probiotic pill, there are certain known microbes in, in the pill. If you make a, a sauerkraut using whatever microbes show up, there's a slightly broader variety of microbes. But if you make something like kombucha, or kefir, these are much more complicated families of microbes that haven't even been characterized um, completely. And likewise, I think what's in our digestive tract, you know, you can get your your microbiome sequenced and all of that, but I think we're we're shooting in the dark a little bit still when we when we 
try to figure out exactly what microbes are where in our bodies and what they're doing. And um, I think it's interesting and worthwhile to pursue this, but I also think that um, it's uh, the, the fermented foods that humans have evolved with, I think, um, what am I trying to say? I think sometimes we overthink this, this stuff. And if, if our goal is, is really to be healthier and happier, I think there's a certain amount of research that's useful. And then after that, like, you know, we, we can just sort of trust in the things that we don't know that, that they'll take care of us. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense too. So I mean, what, I, um, I, in the, sorry, ferment, in the be... fermentation community, what, um, do people tend to just like ferment one thing and they're happy with that or do they ferment like a whole bunch of things and, you know, get into it and try to ferment as much as they can. Like, what do you see in the, in this world, in this community? You know, I, what's, what's great about it is that everyone, everyone does it their own way and even just making sauerkraut. Some people do it one way. Some people do it another. Some people like to do it in little jars. Some people like to do it in giant crocks. Some people like to do it in five gallon plastic buckets. Um, but I, you know, that some things, I have some friends who are very methodical and like they're doing deep dives into making kombucha and figuring out exactly what kind of fruit they like the best in it and what herbs work well. Um, I mean, there are people with bees and if you have bees and you have a lot of honey, then chances are you'll make some kind of honey-based ferment like mead or there's a honey-based kombucha relative called June. Um, if you don't have bees then it's sort of impractical to make those because the honey gets really expensive. Um, so I think a lot of it is contextual, um, but a lot of it, like there are certain things I like to eat and certain things I don't. There, I'm, um, I like kombucha because I can ignore it for two months and come back to it and my kombucha will still be alive. Whereas there are some other fermented beverages that you can't really look away from them for three or four days without their dying. So I think a lot of it has to do with people's temperaments and what people like to eat and the, you know, rhythm of their lives. And, and yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't think I can generalize. Well, do you, do you think people have fermented products more for health or for taste or for some other reason? Um, I try not to hit people over the head with the health stick too much because uh, you know, I mean, if people think they're doing something because it's good for them, they might not enjoy it the way they could if they are doing it because they think it's fun. But I think interestingly, the answer to, to a lot of these questions is sort of all of the above. And maybe that's part of what appeals to me about fermentation. Cause I'm, I'm definitely a both and person and not an either or person in many parts of my life. And so like some people do it for fun, you know, cooking can be meditative. I think it's, it's uh, a way of connecting with your community um, cooking can be meditative and relaxing for some people, um, not for others. Um, some people have to do it for health. There are some people who are, who don't have to do it for health, but they do it because they like the taste and they want to make something that's delicious. Yeah. So I guess, um, yeah, all of the above. Okay. And then what, what are the first things that people will tend to ferment? Like what do they feel most safe with or, you know, what are the easier things to, to do first? I like to recommend sauerkraut um, because, first of all, cabbage is really cheap and you can get it pretty much everywhere in the world. Maybe there's some places in the tropics where it's too consistently hot or humid for cabbages to grow, but even then. So the sauerkraut, it doesn't require... My, my whole thing is getting people in the kitchen to ferment something and then like... It, it once they've um, a lot of people, especially in the U.S., have kitchen anxiety. Like they they spend more time watching cooking shows than they spend cooking. And then when the, once they get in the kitchen, they're sort of um, not necessarily comfortable. And so sauerkraut is is a great starting point. Um, and it's also a good uh, it's a, a canvas that you can uh, be creative on. You can make your plain sauerkraut and then. Maybe you like it with some beets in it or some, you know, caraway seeds or, um, or maybe you want to throw some other vegetables in there. Um, and, you know, few ingredients, no special equipment. Um, you know, something like sourdough bread is fine, but it's, it's a more involved process. And like cucumber pickles are actually 
pretty easy to mess up. Like you mm. can make your pickles can get soggy and mushy and then, you know, that's not much fun. And, you know, sort of white stuff can grow on the top of your jar of pickles and then you're freaked out because, you know, you're, you're worried about food safety. Sauerkraut is pretty durable and pretty, pretty, I won't say foolproof because it can, you can't mess it up, but it, it's good. It's simple. It's pretty reliable and it's interesting. And, you know, I tell people, you know, you make some sauerkraut and then you bring it to your friend's house for a dinner party and it's something new. It's, you know, everyone can bring a six pack of beer or a bottle of wine, but not everyone's going to bring sauerkraut. And so it's sort of, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's fun. It's a little edgy. It's, it can be sour. It can be a little funky, but it's, it's still within the, you know, again, most people are, are up to at least try it. And then if you try it and then you can make it your own, you can make it younger and crunchier. You can make it older and more soggy and more sour. You can put it on a sandwich. You can use it as a side dish and put in your soup, all these things you can do with it. And how do you know when the uh, ferment is working or it's not working? Is it easy to tell or is it not so easy and are the consequences bad if you taste it and it's gone off? With most of the vegetable ferments, um, it becomes pretty obvious if something goes wrong. Because if something goes wrong, then, you know, within a pretty short period of time, like a couple of days, um, there will be gnarly, um, fuzzy stuff growing on it. And uh, your your common sense will prevent you from, from eating it. I mean, generally, if if you're doing a ferment within certain parameters, if, if you're doing a vegetable ferment or, or dairy ferment, um, if it's, if you smell it and it's horrifying, or if you look at it and it's terrifying, then, then something went wrong and, and you don't need to go any further, but otherwise it's fine. And, you know, also, you know, sauerkraut, if, if you don't like it or if you mess it up, then there goes $2 of cabbage and, um, it's not the end of the world. Then the protein ferments like meat and the the Asian protein ferments with like tempeh and miso, they're a little trickier, partly because they're more involved. It may be harder to know when something went wrong. I'm not saying that people shouldn't do them, but they're probably not the right place to start if you haven't fermented something before. Because feeling there's a there's a feeling when you're fermenting, you have to sort of take a leap. Because all our lives we're told to put things away in the refrigerator. And in order to ferment, you have to consciously leave something out of the refrigerator. And mm. I, I'd like to see people do that with something that's going to succeed first and that, um, you know, they can build their confidence and then the, they'll do the, the harder ones once they're, once they feel like they're in control of this uncontrollable process with invisible forces at work. So, okay. Um, so it's pretty, I mean, ferments are pretty safe. Like what if you, um, you know, make one and it does have a little bit of mold, but it's really small. You don't see it and you like taste it anyway. Will you, is it pretty obvious? Like, wow, something's wrong here or, or is, is it hard to tell sometimes? Yeah. I mean, it's a good question with, with a lot of the, with the vegetable ferments, uh, again, like if something bad's going to happen, like you'll see it. I think People people have different answers to this. Some people say, oh, if there's mold on the top, you can just pull it off and throw it away, and what's underneath is fine. Um, I think for some people that might be fine, and for some people it might not be. Um, in terms of eating it, there are people who are extremely sensitive to certain compounds, and they're probably better off not eating that slightly moldy, you know, sauerkraut where the mold was on the top, and, and there may have been... Some a little bit. I mean, a lot of this stuff isn't really black and white. Like what makes one person sick might not make another person sick. But having said that, fermented food, like if you can leave sauerkraut out on the counter for two weeks and it's not moldy, then it's definitely safe. Even if even five days, um, you know, in, in a lot of these cases, um, you know, the mold spores will grow on the top of the mold spores really need air. Like they can't survive under liquid. And so if you make sure that you're, um, vegetables or your product, whatever it is, is under the liquid, then, you know, there's not really going to be mold growing on it. And even if, even if it's just a question of sort of dunking it under the liquid once a day, um, you know, the, the procedures that, you know, I described in the first book, Real Food Fermentation for Making Sauerkraut, and also most of the procedures on the internet 
are pretty safe in terms of like, um, they're not only safe, but they have a high, high probability of succeeding. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's hard to say what, you know, what will work for everyone, but the chances of you're making yourself really sick, making sauerkraut are probably lower than say eating a lot of potato chips, I think in the long run, at least. Okay. So what was your goal in writing your books? What did you want to bring forth and help people with? That's another question that I can only answer in retrospect. Um, at the time when I wrote the first book, I was approached by the publisher and they said, hey, we understand that you know a lot about fermentation. Would you like to write a book? And so I had a choice between writing a book and not writing a book. And I decided I would rather write a book. Um, <laughs> in retrospect, I think, um, you know, I, when I grew up, I saw, you know, terrible things happening in the world around me and I didn't like the way politics were going. And I felt like I was supremely out of control and I had no, you know, I could go to marches and protests and, you know, shout and wave my hands and it wouldn't matter. And there was nothing I could do to tip the balance of, of the world and microcosm or macrocosm towards you know, more power to the individual and the individual human. And I feel like being taken over by industry. I, I figured out again, in retrospect, that one of my, I'm, I'm hmm, consolidation of, of power and production and all this, like the industrial revolution had its points, but it's also had its problems. Um, and in particular with the food system, the uh, applying the lessons of the industrial revolution to our food system has been um, disastrous in a lot of way. Like you can mass produce cars and that's great. But when you mass produce food, you start running into problems like uh, soil depletion, like you lose a lot of the nutrients in your food and, and a lot of uh, processed foods and, and produced foods that, that are unhealthy for us compared to what you could make at home or what you could make if you're growing your own. So to make this, uh, to answer your question, um, this is now let for my radical politics in, in some ways that we're taking power out of the hands of industrial food producers and the, the, and the health insurance and pharmaceutical companies. And, and we're reclaiming it. Some of, some of it for ourselves as individuals, we can make our own food. It'll be healthier. We won't be at the mercy of um, industrial food production and everything that comes with it. And we will, if we can feel that and embody it, then we will, feel more in control of our lives. And by the way, we'll also be healthier and stronger and happier just physically. So, so I think that's why I did it. I didn't know it at the time. Yeah, I got you. So what, um, I don't know, what feedback did you get to your books and to, you know, all your, uh, I don't know, everything that you do, any interesting anecdotes of people or, you know, common fears or questions or uncommon ones? Um, in terms of the mechanics of fermenting or in terms of like, hmm. I mean, I can, I can go with that question. Do you have something in mind when you're, when you're asking? Yeah, I'll be a little bit more specific. So, I mean, well, we'll start with fears. Like what, maybe we've covered them, <clears throat> but what kind of fears do people have about, uh, you know, fermenting? I think people, especially nowadays, like we've become so specialized that we want to trust experts to do things like we trust experts to make our food for us and to, you know, to tell us what to eat, to heal us, to, you know, tell us what to buy. Um, and, you know, since maybe after World War II in the U.S., we, people, homemade food has been a lot less. We have more people in the workplace. We have, we're eating more frozen food, processed food, and we've lost confidence in, you know, in our food. So I think a lot of people are just, um, they have kitchen anxiety. They're, they're, they haven't spent much time in the kitchen and they're just nervous about like, well, what if I can't do it? Or, um, you know, what if I mess up? What if it's not perfect? And the great thing about fermenting is it's, it's fairly fault tolerant and, and robust. And if you look at, um, you know, five different procedures for making sauerkraut, they're all going to be pretty different and they're probably all going to work too. So I think people, people get, um, very uh, um, focused on not doing it wrong. And so I think, uh, I think, you know, my answer for that is you're probably not going to do it wrong. And 
the process of trying is, you know, we, we don't necessarily, it's not like it's taking a risk, but it's trying something, it's developing a new skill. It's trying something that you haven't tried before. Um, it's a learning process. And I think that's healthy, especially as we become adults and as we become more um, encultured to, to let experts do things for us. Like, you know, this is something, you know, we can do for ourselves and we can, we can be our own um, amateurs really and not have to mm. not have to have the experts do everything for us. And uh, some of that goes with health too. I mean, I don't want to tell people to go out and diagnose their own problems, but possibly we can avoid some of them by, by eating foods that will either make us healthier or that'll displace unhealthy foods we might be eating instead. Gotcha. Okay. So what are, uh, I don't know, what are some interesting anecdotes that you heard from people? Um, interesting anecdotes, you know, in, in the second book that uh, Raquel and I wrote, um, there's a recipe in there for uh, tepache, which is a pineapple wine. And this mm-hmm. recipe uses all the parts of the pineapple that you can't eat, like the husk, not the crown part, not the leafy part, but the, the husk and the core. You know, chop it up and add bunch of sugar and then put some water in it and literally just put it in a jar with a cloth over the top and you wait um several days depending on how warm your kitchen is and it'll turn into this sort of bubbly sour pineapple wine and um it'll be different every time and if your timing is off it'll turn into pineapple vinegar which is also lovely um, and I've talked to a lot of people who said, oh, yeah, we make that. We also make that in such and such country and we call it this and we don't make it that way, but we make it this other way. So a lot of a lot of these ferments, um, you know, I think I think putting a recipe like this in a book is is a starting point rather than an ending point. Um, like, I think I would be disappointed if, if people read my books, our books and. Um, and like never and did exactly what we said and never, never elaborated on it or never thought of, you know, we make it this other way. And so um, I didn't exactly answer your question. I can, I could take another swing or you can ask another. Well, here's, here's an example. Like, uh, you know, do many more people ferment than one might expect? Is it, are there certain countries that are famous fermenters? They're just known for it. And like, you know, in writing these books and talking to so many people, what are like interesting, curious things that you've learned about the whole process? Yeah, there there are a lot of people who ferment without knowing it. I think, like the first time I fermented, <laughs> I, I no, I mean in in a good way, well, in a bad way too sometimes. But uh, you know, the first thing I fermented, well, no, I won't even say that. I'll say the first thing I, one of the things I fermented once <laughs> was kimchi. I read this recipe for kimchi and. and involves you do all this stuff and then you leave the jar out on the counter for a few days and it gets bubbly and I was like oh it's in a recipe I can do that and it got bubbly and I don't think I really understood what was going on but I made it and it was good and then you know a couple of years later I read about fermentation I'm like oh that's what was happening in that kimchi those were microbes you know eating the cabbage and making it bubbly um but there if um you know, if, if uh, in, in Ethiopian and Eritrean food, there's this bread called uh, injera. It's like a spongy mm-hmm. bread made out of this grain called teff. And that's fermented. Like you add the, you know, some water and then you leave it out on the counter and it starts getting bubbly. And, and after a few days, there are similar things like in India, there's like dosa. Um, uh, Idli, I think, also fermented. There are these... Uh, batters with with um, lentil flour, chickpea flour. That you, you a similar thing. They you leave them out overnight or a couple of days, and they they get bubbly and frothy, and then you turn them into these pancakes or dumplings. And there there are all these fermented things that people you know say, oh yeah, of course we make them this way, but without necessarily knowing you know specifically as fermented foods. But but um, before people had refrigerators everything was going to ferment. Um, if you have milk and you don't have a refrigerator, at some point it's going to ferment. And the interesting thing there is if you have pasteurized milk um, and you leave it out, it becomes terrible. But if you have unpasteurized milk and you leave it out, it turns into this 
um, almost like yogurt drink that that is actually perfectly good and safe to drink. Um, and it, um, the old American, um, European-American name for it is clabber. And it's just something that people drink because, you know, you milk the cows and then at the end of the day, some of that milk is sour and you can still drink it. And then two days later, it's even more sour. Um, so I think uh, traditionally before the refrigerator, a lot of people had more fermented things or like fruit salad will start to turn into fruit wine ever so slightly if you leave it out. And the more alcohol develops in it, the less likely it is to get, um, you know, moldy or, or something like that. Anyway. Are there any um, weird things that you tried to ferment or other people have that you were like really surprised? Like, Oh, I didn't know you could ferment that. Um, yeah. Uh, recently. So recently people have been doing more protein ferments and, and this is the realm of the, of the mold ferments really. Um, I know you have my friend Kirsten Shockey on, on your show and, and mm-hmm. she's an expert on the, the mold ferments. Um, you can ferment. You can ferment just about anything with mold because mold will break down anything, like meat, vegetables, grains. Um, some of the things people people make, like in the old days, a very popular thing to do is make fish sauce, and and uh, you basically put a bunch of fish in a barrel and let them rot, and then pour off the liquid, and that's your fish sauce. Um, people were doing that in ancient Rome. People still do that in in uh, East Asia, um, you can achieve a similar result. You can make anything sauce with, with the enzymes produced by the right kind of mold. And so like, you know, people do with table scraps or with lettuce or whatever. Um, you know, I I won't say it's weird, but it's, it's, um, I guess I'm happy to, to engage with it, but I think my focus is really on what I can get people to do how I can launch people with fermenting in the kitchen. And so um, I guess I focus less on the weird stuff and more on how I can get people to be less afraid of it rather than um, making it into a sort of spectacle or weirdness contest. Although I'm, I'm very down for, for the weirdness contest in general, but uh, I I don't want to, I don't want to make fermentation into a, a more of a freak show than, uh, some people may already think it is. Right. Um, it, it, in terms of processed foods, it seems like they're not amenable to being fermented. Is that like a, a generality that's true or not? Well, um, there are a lot of processed foods that, that sort of mimic uh, traditional fermented foods. Like uh, there's a class of sour drinks, sort of maybe we can choose kombuchas or representative since a lot of people know what kombucha is these days and they're sour and a little sweet and maybe fizzy and soda was definitely a developed as an industrial uh, facsimile of, of these sour drinks. And rather than waiting around for a trend, you say, okay, we can make it bubbly by injecting some carbon dioxide and we can make it sour by adding some phosphoric acid and no, oh, let's make it really sweet so that people drink a lot of it and put all the sugar in it. Um, so, um, you know, I think in a lot of cases, processed foods are sort of fake fermented foods. And I'm not the first person to say that. I mean, certainly Sandor Katz has, has um, been saying that for a while. I was wondering if, if in general, processed packaged foods are not amenable to fermenting, if you need more fresh produce and things like that. It wouldn't even be a good idea to try to ferment processed foods or you're headed for trouble. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, you can you can ferment you can ferment all sorts of things. Um, I've uh, experimented with you know, prolonging the life of, of salsa by adding a um, some sauerkraut or some some kind of fermented starter to it and stirring it, and leaving it out on the counter for a while. You you can do a lot of stuff. I think those are a lot of processed foods. Again, like the processed foods themselves often. Um, if they were ever fermented, like most of them weren't, and if they ever were fermented, they've usually been killed just for shelf stability because a fermented food that's still alive is going to be um, maybe generating carbon dioxide gas or maybe it'll be growing and changing, especially if you don't keep it in the refrigerator. But, um, you know, you, so the, 
the best hmm, the sort of philosophically purist way of fermenting things is you grow them and then you ferment them like you stay with them for the whole life cycle um and that's not realistic because a lot of people in the world can't grow their own food because they don't have any land to do it with for whatever reason um so i won't say that it's not good to ferment packaged foods but if you can ferment um fresh foods it's yeah it's 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 a good thing to do i again i don't want to tell anyone not to ferment certain things if they if it would work um and you know fermentation can be viewed as a way to breathe life back into things like um i mean i view pasteurized milk as a highly processed food and you can ferment that into yogurt which is a fermented food and you know that's a, a great thing like i don't drink a lot of plain old pasteurized milk but i have definitely my share of yogurt and buttermilk and other and cheese and other fermented milk products that come from processed foods so i guess i guess cheese fermented dairy is an example where that's definitely you know if you're willing to uh, to buy the idea that processed the um, pasteurized milk is a processed food which if we look at what happens to it during the processing it, it's pretty it's a pretty good case. Um, then fermented dairy is, is a case where that's the norm, even I'd say. Well, have you seen anyone that runs a commercial enterprise, you know, a coffee shop, a restaurant or whatever, and are they even allowed to do their own fermenting and serve it to customers or, you know, has regulation caused it to only be allowable in the home and for oneself? Um, that's a really good question. And it's sort of a gray area. Um, part of it is, uh, the you know permitting authorities want to understand what you're doing in a restaurant and uh, um, this may have been this may be changing in certain parts of the country in the world at least i i guess i can only, I'll only speak about the us because that's what i know about um yeah there's sometimes people will ferment things in their restaurants and just not talk to the inspectors about it and People, you know, really fermented foods are safer than raw foods, say. So there's not, um, as long as you know what you're doing, it's 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 fine. But it's definitely a gray area. And also about, like, you know, what you can sell at farmer's markets and what, what kind of permitting you even need and, and all of this. Um, so it, it's, um, I think that's an open question um, about, like, what you're, allowed to do according to the letter of the law, what actually happens in practice, what's safe to do. And um, yeah, it's, it's complicated. <laughs> okay. And I always wonder, um, yeah, I heard this from a friend one time we were in like, you know, a grocery store and he's like, Oh, you know, these yogurts, they're like a touch fermented. They're fermented like for two seconds, just so they can say they are. And then they're sold to people. And it, you know, if you do it at home, you can get, you know, instead of like a billion bacteria, you can get like a trillion bacteria. And it's much better to do it at home. And, you know, what, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I do think that home fermented foods are likely to have more diversity, uh, more different kinds of microbes. Um, they may have more microbes in absolute count. Um, although, you know, you know, some of the yogurt you can buy in a store is probably not very good. And some of it is probably fine. If it's kept in the refrigerator, refrigerator slows down fermentation of most things, really. So, um, you know, yogurt, yogurt will keep in the refrigerator for a good long time. And, you know, it's losing some of its microbes along the way. But I don't know. I mean, I think also the, the perfect can be the enemy of the good in this case. Like if, if somebody says, oh, well, you know, don't bother with commercial yogurt or don't bother with you know, the commercial fermented sauerkraut when, you know, you should only buy it at home. I think that's taking it too far and, and um, it, it's not necessarily helpful, but, you know, what are, what are the actual counts? I don't know. I mean, the thing I will say is that um, there's some companies that have started um, either uh, selectively breeding or modifying microbes and then using them using those microbes in their yogurt and then doing special research to prove that this microbe does x y and z and then saying oh you can only get this microbe in our yogurt um and i think that's just profiteering and um it's very cynical um to take um 
this happens a lot with like traditional medicines too. Like um, aspirin comes from the bark of, of I think it's a birch tree or something. And it's a traditional uh, medicine in, in South America, I think. And, and um, you know, we extract what we think is the active ingredient and then we concentrate it and then we patent it and try and make money selling it. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's sort of offensive to me. I understand, you know, the necessity of it in some ways, but, but it's, it's still, um, I don't know, you know, I mean, the whole thing that the whole, the whole industrial revolution thing has, has its problems, but we're sort of, we're sort of stuck with it. I'm, I'm realistic about it, but I, th- I think it's important to see that its weaknesses too, even, even as we're part of it. Yeah, no, it makes sense. <clears throat> so, um, I don't know, is there any way to tell? you know, the food you make, how much bacteria it has in it? Does it feel different or taste different to have something where it's like, whoa, is it really <laughs> fermented or not? You know, what can you tell? Well, um, in fermented drinks, like when I make my own kombucha, um, you know, you make kombucha and then I'll usually do a secondary bottle ferment. So I'll put the kombucha in a bottle with a little fruit or some, you know, extra sugar in some form, usually fruit. And I'll close the cap tight and I'll leave it on the counter at room temperature and it will get fizzy. And the fizziness is evidence that there are things alive in it that are eating sugar and making carbon dioxide, basically. Um, So that's evidence of life. Um, I suppose you can gauge its aliveness by how fizzy it is. Um, It's pretty imprecise. You could try to figure out how much carbon dioxide it's generating divided by how much time and infer from that, like the rate of metabolism of the, of the microbes and all that. I, you know, the, the, for some people, I think that's, that's the interesting part of it for me. Um, I guess I'm not, I think we get in a lot of trouble in the, in the West. Uh, we can be very reductionist. And I think in some cases, it's important to break down these processes and understand exactly what's going on. And, and there are a lot of people who are inclined to do that. And that's great. I, you know, again, that's not as much my thing. I think like if we can get people to do this, I think like, you know, one batch of sauerkraut you make will be very alive. And then the other one, maybe for whatever reason, won't be as alive. And like, you know, one batch of yogurt you have will be very alive and another one won't be as alive. But um, as long as it's safe, as long as you enjoy it, it's almost certainly better for you than like any number of other things you can eat. And like, I don't know. I guess microbe microbe counting and classification isn't isn't what what um gets me excited about it. But I I think there are people doing that work and it's important um to our understanding of it. But um yeah, I you know definitely I mean and some people will say, Oh, I ate that and I felt great immediately. I'm maybe not as sensitive, um just good and bad because I don't get sick either. I'm not as sensitive one way or the other. Um yeah, I know. That's that's my okay. that's my thing. So, all right. So, what are some good resources? Like, where can people get your books? That would probably be a good start. And then, any other resources for them? Um, I'm, I'll definitely say um, I'll plug my books: "Real Food Fermentation" and the book I co-authored with Raquel, uh, "Kombucha Kafir and Beyond." I think for people interested in hot sauces, I will. Uh, Kirsten's book is great. Um, uh, fermented hot sauces, I think it's called, for people interested in mold ferments. The you know her her book um, on um, miso tempeh, etc. is is great uh, for people who want sort of the big picture, a little anthropology, a little history, a little how to. Um, Sandra Katz, the art of fermentation, is still uh, I think a, he, he says he says early in the book he says this is no, I didn't set out to make. Uh, reference to all of fermentation and he may not have set out to do that and he has he did many other great things with that book but I think it is it is a a better overview than than anything else I can think of Um, there there are a bunch of other books that that cover specific parts of fermenting very well like there's a great book on sourdough by Sarah Owens Um, but I think um, you know, the internet is full of information about fermenting. And I think once somebody has made a few things, they'll be pretty able to assess, you know, the information that they 
encounter out there and see what sounds like fun to them and what doesn't. I mean, there's so many th different things you can ferment. Nobody's going to ferment all of them. Um, so people will find the things they're drawn to. And um, yeah, the internet, I mean, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and, you know, if there, if there's a particular culture, you know, your, your, your parents or your grandparents, like if your grandparents are alive, you know, ask them, you know, what kind of food they made. Um, you know, most of us are only one or two or sometimes three generations away from people who made all their own food at home. And I think sure. anything you can do to, to get their stories from them while they're still around and like, you know, video them or, or interview them. And that's, what your, uh, that's what your next book's going to be about, right? You're going around the world and interviewing all these old fermenters before they go and you're assembling it into a book. I don't know, but you know, I've heard worse ideas, Rich. You know, that's. Uh, <laughs> I think that's your next mission, maybe. You know, I I charge I charge you with it here. Okay. <laughs> if you want, maybe I'll do it. Maybe I'll do it. Thanks I think that'd be the, cool. Thanks for the encouragement. Yeah. Well, very good. Well, uh, you know, it's been a great call, Alex. I, I appreciate you being here, and uh, you know, thanks for all your knowledge. Well, thanks for being interested, and and thanks for your great questions, and uh, yeah, thanks for your great podcast, man. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Thank you.